Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. We are racing toward the end of the Ten Commandments. This is our last sermon on the Eighth Commandment, and then we just have four more, two each on the Ninth and on the Tenth. Our text is very simple. Verse 15, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Let's pray. Father, the words are simple, but we find it very hard to keep this commandment. Help us not just to abstain from the big and obvious sins of grand larceny, embezzlement, petty theft, armed robbery, etc. Father, keep our hearts content with what we have. Help us to live according to our place and calling, to be free from greed And to take care of that property that you have entrusted to us. Help us not to err by excess or defect in our care for what you have given us to steward. Help us above all to see all things put under the feet of the Son of Man. In whose name we pray. Amen. This is... The subject of property is one that we are familiar with, perhaps overly familiar with. We think we understand it because we all have a folder in a drawer at home that says titles. In that drawer are various things, various pieces of paper that, according to the state of Wyoming and Campbell County, give you ownership of a particular vehicle a particular plot of land, uh, something along those lines. We're around property owners. We are property owners. And therefore we think, I know what this is. I've got this. Property is not one of my problem areas. But I'd like to complicate that picture a little bit. And let me begin. I don't usually do this. Let me begin with a quote uh, from Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his Discourse on Inequality, where Rousseau, 18th century French thinker, attacks the very idea of property. Rousseau writes, The first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, This is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, Beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. Thus far, the words of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. From Rousseau, from this philosophical stream, comes the radical or revolutionary faction in modern politics, including its most successful variant that we know as Marxism. Marxism mounts an attack directly on the idea of private property and tells us that private property as such, as private, is 
immoral, exactly, of course, what Rousseau said in the 1700s. This guy was just a liar to say, I own this piece of turf. The fruits of the earth belong to us all, the earth itself to nobody. Now we reject the Marxist, the Rousseauan paradigm. But as I said, I want to complicate this picture a little bit more to help us understand why we reject that paradigm. It's not enough to just say, thou shalt not steal, therefore, private property. That's true, but we need to understand why it's true. So let's talk about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He placed man in the garden to guard it and to keep it. We've talked about that. And it's true. If we go with Rousseau back to the beginning and we say, would it make any sense for Eve to say, Adam, I don't want you to touch this tree. This one is mine. Don't eat the fruit of this one, Adam. This is my special kitchen tree. But now we can imagine Eve telling little Cain, Cain, you can't have this. This is mommy's raspberry plant, and if you touch it, you are so dead. Private property is something that is not a consequence of the fall. It is something that God designed from the beginning. But private property is not absolute. We talked about this last week. We are not the final owner of anything we own. We are only stewards of everything for the final owner who is God. So private property is a reality, but that is because the world is for the human race. God made the earth for mankind, which is True, Rousseau's twist on it is false, but it is true that the world is not for individuals, but is for the human race. We can see this in several different ways. Probably the clearest way to think of it is in terms of a story that Jesus told, a story that you know very well, a story we know as the Good Samaritan. The man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves. He was beaten and left for dead. And there came along a Levite who passed by on the other side. There came along a priest who passed by on the other side of the road. And then finally there comes along a Samaritan who picks up the Jewish man who was beaten and left for dead, takes him to an end, heals his wounds, cares for him, pays the innkeeper for care of the Samaritan. Now, how does this parable of the Good Samaritan relate to private property? The answer is simply this. Did the Levite and the priest have the right to say, contents of my wallet are mine, and there is no law that says I have to share with my fellow countrymen there in the ditch? Right? Is it right for the Levite to say, my property, 
I don't have to share. Is it right for the priest to say, my property, I don't have to share? We know that according to the way Jesus told the story, no, that is not right. There's no category of pretty good Samaritan who doesn't do all that he can for his wounded and dying neighbor. This, is, this principle manifests itself in all kinds of ways. A feminist in the 1970s wrote an article defending abortion by appealing to the story of the pretty good Samaritan and saying it's actually okay for the priest and the Levite to pass by on the other side. It's not wrong to withhold charity. If you have a baby inside your body, it is okay to kick that baby out and say, my body, I don't have to share. My property, I don't have to share. The Word of God says something different. It says, yes, what's yours is yours, but only in a relative way, only in a qualified way. You are not the final owner of anything, including your own body. You are merely a steward. So if we approach it biblically, we see that in the beginning, God made the world for the human race. If we approach it biblically, we see that God demands, we are morally obligated to share our property with others. Sharing is not an optional extra. Charitable giving is not an optional extra. It is a requirement for every human person. If we look at it historically, we see the same reality. Every land on earth has been overrun violently and conquered by other nations or tribes at some point. And many portions of the earth's surface have changed hands dozens or hundreds of times. Thus, uh, probably some of you know this, supposedly Japan or the two main islands of Japan have not been conquered or occupied by another tribe successfully since 600 BC, thus giving the Japanese the longest continuous occupation of a single unconquered territory anywhere on this planet. God, in other words, did not give particular lands, particular goods, particular chattels, particular skills to particular individuals or even to particular families. He did not make it an iron law that a Julio-Claudian would rule Rome, that a Windsor would rule England, that Native Americans would rule the territory we call Wyoming. Rather, he gave the world to the human race to divide up as best as we could. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, which we read in our call to worship, Psalm 115, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The earth belongs to the human race, not to Caleb Nelson. Whatever title you and I have to whatever property we have, ultimately we own that property, not as an individual, not as ourselves, but by virtue of being human. It is the common element, the common humanity that is core so this doctrine, I have the official name there, is called the common destination of property. That doesn't mean that the whole planet is going to burn 
that means that all property ultimately is destined to serve the needs of man, of the race. God made the world not for me, but for us. And the story of the Good Samaritan highlights that so clearly. Now that said, there is a particular human being for whom the world ultimately exists. This one man owns the world outright. He made it for himself. Right? You know his name. His name is Jesus. What does Psalm 8 say? Or rather Hebrews 2, quoting Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. All things were created through him and for him. So why do I say that the world belongs to the human race? Ultimately, because the world belongs to the Son of Man and therefore to those who are united to him by faith. The world belongs to Jesus Christ. And that's why he can tell the Levite, you're going to open your wallet and share with this wounded Jewish man. That's why he can tell the priest, you're going to open your wallet and share with your fellow countryman who's here in the ditch. That's why he can point to the Samaritan and say, here's someone who understands property. Here's someone who takes what he has and gives to his neighbor. The Son of Man inherits the earth because he is the truly meek one, right? The meek will inherit the earth. Guess who's meek? Jesus. We saw the promise in Romans 4. Abraham was told that he would be heir of the world. Guess who fulfilled that promise? Jesus, the one who inherits the earth. So the world belongs to the human race as summed up in our champion, the Son of Man. And that is why moral strictures apply to property. So what's wrong with the Marxist approach? What's wrong with the Rousseauan paradigm? Right? Rousseau says, fill in the ditch, tear up the stakes, destroy the title deed. That is how you restore Eden. Christ says the opposite. We don't bring justice by taking we bring justice by giving the Marxist paradigm is this private property is unjust therefore take it confiscate it nationalize it share it at the point of a gun the Christian paradigm is if you're using your private property unjustly stop The fact that you're using it unjustly doesn't give others the right to take it. God gave it to you to steward. But it gives you the responsibility to stop using it unjustly and start using it justly. And that is seen again most clearly in the career of Jesus who took the world, his world that is being corrupted, being trampled on, being abused and polluted and sinned against by his creatures And he came, and rather than nationalizing the world back and simply making earth a province of heaven and wiping out the corruption, he came and gave his life. 
he gave as a way of setting it right. So the Marxists say, take, confiscate. We say, no, give. And if someone isn't giving, that's not our problem. It's between them and God. We don't take. We give because the world belongs to Christ and he gave. Because the world is ours, because the world is Christ's, how you use your property, how you acquire your property, how you dispose of your property, how you maintain your property, it's all subject to moral strictures. It all has moral implications. So what are the main errors here? The main errors that I would say are prevalent among us in particular. And there's two, as with many of the other commandments, the errors of excess and the errors of defect. There are many who care excessively for property, and there are others who care defectively. And of course, most of us have both. We care excessively about certain things, and we care too little defectively about others. Excess. I can't resist. I already read you a quote from Rousseau. Here's another from Dickens describing Ebenezer Scrooge, the epitome of the one who cares excessively for property. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. This is what greed looks like. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Who among us would want to be characterized thus? And yet that is the nature of excessive care for property. Greed is exhibit A in this regard. Our culture is a culture of greed. We understand that intellectually, but we often think it doesn't affect us. Oh, I'm not greedy. I don't need, I'm not greedy like those people there. Greed, I think, manifests itself very clearly in our thought process. We've taken the biblical category of fruitfulness and replaced it with the secular category of growth. We want our corn stalk to be the size of Jack's bean stalk. We want our apple tree to be the size of the giant sequoia. Right? Growth is neither here nor there. Cancer is a growth. What God wants to see is not growth, per se, just getting larger, but fruit. What are you growing? We've all been disappointed by that plant you plant that just runs riot and gets so big and never produces any fruit. We had a pumpkin plant like that in New Hampshire. It was huge. had no pumpkins at all. Or a grapevine like that. Huge vine with dressed tendrils everywhere. No grapes. Greed is all about growth. God wants fruit, not just growth. Greed manifests itself in the ideology we call materialism. The idea that the purpose of human life is the acquisition of more and better stuff. Again, our culture is absolutely pickled in this ideology. We're drowned in it. If your closet is bursting, if your cupboards and freezer have no extra room, if you can't park in the garage because of all the stuff you have jammed in there, 
If you talk from time to time about clearing out the basement, if you have persistent junk disease, you may be a materialist. How much do you need? How much is enough? That all depends on your place and calling. The least capital-intensive business is writing. You need a pencil and a piece of paper. Pick up the materials for writing for a few cents. The most capital-intensive business, probably chip-making, oil refining. You need bespoke, vast volumes of raw materials, huge factories, specialized equipment. (coughs) Uh, One or two of these can cost multiple dozens of billions of dollars. Chemical making, all of these things call for huge amounts of capital. So it's not wrong if you are... Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corp. to have $200 billion worth of plant and equipment. If you run a trucking company, it's not wrong to have a dozen vehicles in your personal fleet. Depends on your place and calling. Nehemiah writes in Nehemiah 5, Moreover, there are at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the servants was too heavy on this people. Now if any of you comes to me and says, I feed 150 men three meals a day, I will say that's ridiculous. That's not generosity, that's posturing. Your social place, your calling, is not that. No one in this church is at a governor level, provincial governor rank. We're just not. Nehemiah was. He was governor of the province beyond the river in the Persian Empire, and therefore he had to maintain an establishment that killed, what, one ox and six choice sheep and birds every single day. Most of us, if you're slaughtering a cow every day and eating the whole thing, that is not appropriate for your place and calling. But it was appropriate for Nehemiah because that was his place and calling. He was a governor and he had to live in the style befitting a governor. So middle class respectability. What does that mean? The toy hauler, the car, the boat, the RV, the truck the water ski or the jet skis and the four-wheelers and the side-by-sides and everything else or materialism is insidious because we live in it we don't understand how greedy we are it's easiest to see perhaps in this next one in the sin of failing to be generous of being the priest or the levite who passes by on the other side and says i'm just going to look away I don't see that misery. I don't want to see that misery. Not my problem. God says, give to the poor. He even gives a suggested donation amount in the Old Testament, rather a required donation amount. One t- a tithe every three years, or three and a third percent of your income on an annual basis. That is God's recommended amount to give to the poor. Do you do that? Have you calculated that target and do you meet that target with your expenditures? Giving to the poor is not an optional extra for the Christian any more than for the priest and Levite in the story 
of the Good Samaritan. Do you think it's wise to try to rip off God? That's what God calls it when you don't give to him and to the poor. He says, will a man rob God? You are robbing me. You're much safer trying to bamboozle the IRS than to try to bamboozle the Almighty. The third error of excess, or fourth error of excess, is the error of environmentalism. This is an excessive care for the earth. It's a perverted form of the dominion mandate. In its worst, most egregious forms, environmentalism takes the dominion mandate that says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and flips it and says, be fruitless and die off, empty the earth, and let nature take its course. Now, of course, being humans, those who say that, still believe in a version of the dominion mandate. And they still insist that human beings take over the earth by not taking over the earth. That it is our responsibility, for instance, to keep the global temperature from rising. This is the dominion mandate coming back in the back door after it was kicked out the front door. Radical environmentalism is an error of excess. Caring too much for the planet. On the other hand, when we come to the errors of defect, pollution is a great example of an error of defect. That's stealing by passing costs on to others. Oh, I have too much extra mercury in my factory. I'll just dump it into this harbor. Oh, look, all the people around the harbor are dying and being born with only two fingers on each hand because they're eating mercury-laden fish. Not my problem. It happened in Minamata Bay in Japan. You can still read about it today. Not disposing of hazardous waste is a form of theft. And this error of defect is obviously what triggered the error of excess and the environmentalist side. Both are wrong. We are required to steward our property and care for the earth in a right way. Not excessively, not defectively, but again, according to our place and calling. Graffiti is another form of defective care for property. Uh, scribbling on something, you may think that you're a good artist. You may even be a good artist. But to go up and spray paint a butterfly on the side of a coal car is defective care for property because it's not yours. And no matter how many butterflies BNSF could use on their rail cars, it's not your place to do it. The same goes for tattoos. This is a form of graffiti on the property of another. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, just as in the abortion article, oh, it's my body, I don't have to take care of the baby inside. Oh, it's my body, I can write on it whatever I want. The Word of God says differently. Come with me to Leviticus 19, just for a moment. This is always a good passage to read. Leviticus 19, God specifically says, well, he gives a number of regulations here. So let's start at verse 26 of Leviticus 19. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you 
I am Yahweh. Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. So, people say, oh, come on. It says, don't tattoo. And in the previous verse, it says, don't shave your beard. And they would look at me and say, look at that. You shaved your beard. Now you're telling me not to tattoo. Don't you understand anything about how the Old Testament law has passed away? To which I would respond this. I don't think getting a tattoo destroys the temple any more than I think spray painting a dragonfly on the side of the West Wing destroys the White House. It doesn't destroy it, but it's not yours. Secondly, in terms of the Leviticus passage, let's just look at each of these verses. Don't eat with the blood, practice divination or soothsaying. So don't get involved in occult rituals. Sounds like a moral command to me. Divination, soothsaying, eating blood. Shaving around the sides of your head and disfiguring the edges of your beard? What is that? Well, I would put it with the previous verse and the next verse. What is the previous verse? Divination, soothsaying. What's the next verse? Don't make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead. It's most likely talking about pagan death rituals. Don't mark and disfigure your haircut or your beard for the sake of making it clear that you are mourning the dead. Just like you shouldn't cut yourself, right? Self-harm, self-injury, we know that that's morally wrong. Pagan death rituals, I think we can agree that those are morally wrong. And then, of course, the verse after the tattoo verse, verse 29, don't prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot. Also sounds like a moral command. When we look at the context, it says, don't do pagan rituals, don't do pagan death rituals, don't get a tattoo, and don't sell your daughter to a bordello. Sounds like a list of moral commands to me. Furthermore, it just goes back to the graffiti thing. This is not your body. This is not my body. This is a body that belongs to God that he has given to us to take care of. So another sin of defect, defective caring for property, would be the sin of gambling, where you take money, lay a bet, and say, if my bet is right, I will get more money. If my bet is wrong, I will lose the money that I put forth. Now, our Westminster Confession declares that this commandment forbids wasteful gaming. But I always ask, is there any other kind? What's wrong with gambling? Here's what's wrong with gambling. Gambling is not a legitimate exchange of money for fun. Gambling is not akin to going to the amusement park and spending money to ride the roller coaster. Why not? Gambling triggers a different part of the brain. Essentially, that's why. Gambling is like taking drugs, viewing porn, eating fast food, arguing on social media, and other addictive behaviors. Gambling triggers the brain's pleasure apparatus that produces a craving for more rather than triggering the brain's contentment mechanism that produces a feeling of satisfaction and fullness. 
right? So if you take a dose of methamphetamine, you feel happy for a time. And then when the feeling of happiness fades, what comes next? The craving for more of that same pleasure, right? Gambling is not an activity that satisfies. Nobody goes to the casino and spends a reasonable amount of time, 10 or 15 minutes, laying bets and then says, I'm satisfied. There are no, as far as I know, there are no roller coasters in this world that take an hour to complete their course. And there are certainly none that take 8 or 10 or 12 hours. That's because normal pleasures that give satisfaction have an expiration date. You move on after a time. Gambling is something where you don't naturally move on. You just sit there and keep gambling and gambling and gambling and gambling. Therefore, gambling is an act of greed, not an act of contentment. It is an act of theft, not of legitimate trading. It is the opposite of work to say, I will seek a reward utterly incommensurate with what I bet. I will put $5 in the slot machine and I will hope to walk away with $2,000. Yank the arm, see what happens. A final defective form of caring for property is conspicuous consumption where you take your property and you use it not for good not for the good of yourself your family your place your calling but rather use it to impress others or to achieve levels of comfort and satisfaction that are essentially overblown and absurd a five million dollar hypercar is an example of conspicuous consumption a $36,000 per night overwater suite in the Maldives, a great example of conspicuous consumption. A private individual, right? There's all kinds of things where you could say, well, I love big boats. So I managed to purchase a destroyer that was being sold for scrap. And now I have on the lake my own personal 200-foot destroyer. This is utterly incommensurate with the place and calling of a private individual. You don't need your own private navy, even if it's just one ship, and so on. There's all kinds of conspicuous consumption that we engage in. Television size, or the newness, the make, the model of your car. All of these things are marketed specifically with the idea of impressing others. Yes, the car is comfortable, but you would also want everyone to see that nameplate that indicates that you paid a massive pile of money to get that car. So where do we end up? We end up with this. Christ gives individuals property to steward. The world is for the human race. That's what God made it for. There are no title deeds signed by God the Father. No land grants where he says, this particular family gets this particular territory forever and ever, amen. Rather, he tells us to figure it out. Property has been taken and will be taken by conquest over and over and over. But as Thomas Joseph White comments, in its deepest dimension, you shall not steal refers to the prohibition against taking from Christ what belongs to him. Thus, many of us defend theft by saying the victim 
can afford it. The victim is evil. The victim doesn't matter. And I'm just taking from Hollywood if I watch the pirated movie. I'm just taking from Walmart if I steal the television set. They'll never know the difference. But we're not talking about taking from Hollywood or Walmart or, for that matter, the federal government by cheating on our taxes. We're talking about taking from the Son of Man, the one who has all authority on heaven and earth and who owns all land and property and goods and chattels on heaven and earth. And that means we've failed. You've failed. I've failed. The tattooed man, the conspicuously consuming woman, the shifter of costs, the environmentalist, the polluter, all of us have assumed these identities, one or other of them. We haven't stewarded God's property perfectly. Far from it. We recognize that. Right? We see the weeds in our lawns, the cracks in our sidewalks. We hear the ticking in our car's engine. We recognize that we're not maintenance champs and every other thing that we're responsible to do with our property. So what do we do about that? We go to Jesus and we ask Him for forgiveness. We say, you're the owner. I have messed up your property. Forgive me. Help me to be a better steward from now on. When your life is ending, be ready to hand everything you have over to the Son of God. You couldn't put it in better hands. It was His anyway. You're just caring for it for now. Let's pray. Father, help us to care for our property. Spare us from the errors of excess, where we love it too much, and are squeezing, wrenching, grasping, grinding, covetous individuals. Father, spare us from the errors of defect, where we don't care enough, where we fail to perform the maintenance, where we indulge in wasteful things like gambling and tattooing. Father, help us to care for our property rightly, to accumulate according to our place and calling, to give generously like the Good Samaritan. Help us to repudiate the idea that errors of property can be redressed by taking, by pulling up stakes and filling in ditches. Help us above all, Father, to see that the world belongs to the Son of Man and that in Him the earth and its fullness are ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.